healthcare B2C business model hasn't really been successful in the past. Yeah, So we knew it was a big challenge. What we achieved is that we build up 1 million of ARR within the first 12 months. And all of that with me and my co-founder doing sales plus one sales executive. So it was a super basic setup. A B2B solution can only survive when you really have impact on the end user. What's tough for a lot of B2B companies is that they understand in the first place the company and the persona they are selling to but in the second place they usually we were debating a lot around pivoting or not what helped us to finally take a decision was Bonjour bonjour and welcome to Mission First the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better In this podcast, you will learn from entrepreneurs who have already found product market fit and are scaling up fast. We discuss their challenges and the strategies they have applied to make things work. Think of it as a masterclass about business and product innovation, growth marketing and leadership. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help mission-driven companies exceed their revenue objectives with growth marketing, product-led growth and LinkedIn personal branding strategies. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Kimberly Breuer. Kimberly is the co-CEO and co-founder of LikeMinded. LikeMinded is a solution for mental health at work. They are improving the well-being of more than 20,000 employees from various companies such as N26 or Jack Wolfskin. They have more than 40 employees in-house and they are growing very fast, raising their Series A at the moment. Today, we are going to talk about how to build a successful mental health company based on data and machine learning. We will also learn how they pivoted successfully from B2C to B2B after one year. Kimberly, welcome to Mission First. How are you? Yeah, thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm also very excited to be here and to talk about the topics. I'm doing very well. That's great to hear. And tell me a little bit about this podcast is called Mission First. So what's the mission of Like-Minded? Yeah, sure. So the mission of Like-Minded is really to give as many people as possible access to mental health care support. What does it mean exactly? We want to spread psychological knowledge and psychological support to everyone so that everyone is actually capable of steering their life in an easier way and ensuring that they keep up a good mental health. Because this is something that has been, let's say, overlooked in the last uh, decades of years in our society. We didn't really take mental health seriously. And this is something that we are about to change. And we are also eliminating the stigma around mental health and thus giving people easy access to support and, of course, understanding of the topic. That's really nice to see that now, slowly but surely, like mental health is starting to be taken seriously. So what should I know about you? What should the listeners know about you to, you know, about your, your life, your past experience to understand where you are at right now, why you are in this position right now? So I think the most important thing to know about me is that I'm 100% passionate about the topic of psychology and mental health. And this goes back to a point in my life when I was actually 15 years old and I got the chance because of a family crisis to participate in a psychological coaching workshop for teenagers. And that completely changed my life back then. I, I remember that I was coming out of this workshop, which took a weekend. 
and learned so much about myself, about my self-worth, my goals, my childhood experiences that would impact my current life and reality that I was wondering and surprised why we wouldn't learn these things in school. And that was really a, a huge question for myself. And that was the moment I realized, hey, I want to share this experience with as many people as possible. I do believe that a lot of us can benefit from such knowledge and experiences. And that's when I decided to become a psychologist myself and then later on also an educated coach. And um, yeah, before starting like-minded, I worked also as a coach with private clients. And through that time, I realized more and more that This is a way bigger mission than I could achieve on my own. Um, and that was the reason I decided to found a company in that space to really bring it to the mass of the people and have an impact in the mental health area. When did you start the company? We started the company in August 2020. So it's, um, yeah, right now, three years ago, already quite a journey, even though it feels like we just started yesterday. <laughs> You co-founded this company with four people in total, or you are four co-founders. Mm -hmm. So why and how did it, how was it to actually co-found a company with so many people? Well, I think that was just coming. So it wasn't the plan from the beginning to co-found a company with three co-founders. It just happened on the way that we found each other. So actually I was... Directly after my master's, I started in consultancy because I thought before starting a company, I need to, to gather some business knowledge. That's why I started in consultancy. And during that time of my first year in consultancy, I started ideating what is the good business model to start off. And during that time, I was looking also for co-founders. And that's how I met my co-CEO, Maximilian, on the way, because he was actually working on a similar idea already. And that's how we got introduced to each other. And then we both also met uh, our co-founders, Stefan, our CTO, and our CPO, Yoshu. And it was just such a good fit together that we decided to found this company, the four of us. Was Maximilian already like very advanced with the with the idea or did you jump on his idea or did you convince him to start something slightly new with a new business model you had in mind or? Yeah, actually, the, f the funny thing is that we really were working on the complete exact same idea, which was bringing group sessions online. And uh, so it didn't feel like any one of us had to jump on the idea of the other, but actually bringing our visions together. Mine was probably coming a bit more from the psychological perspective, meaning a bit more clinical perspective, while his idea was coming a bit more from the, let's say, lifestyle and mental wellness perspective. And that's where we kind of merged the ideas and probably brought it a bit more into a psychological product. To give a picture of the company at the moment, you have affected the well-being of more than 20,000 employees the past three years. Can you explain us a bit how the solution looks like? Because we have plenty of ways to do that. You have plenty of competitors in the, in the market. So what's your unique selling point? What's the unique benefit that you offer to, to the, the companies you are working with? Mm -hmm. I think in order to answer that question, a question it's important to understand for the audience that we actually started in the B2C market. And that start in the B2C market definitely impacted the product development and the product as it looks like today. 
Because when you start in B2C, you're very user-focused, right? So you're focusing on the end user of your product. And this made us very close to the user and also very close to understanding the individual needs of our users. And when we then decided to pivot to B2B and one year after, like one year later into the journey, um, we built also the B2B product very, very user-centric and focused because we had so many learnings with our direct user contact that one of our USPs nowadays is stemming from that experience and is reflected in a very, let's say, a guided platform or guided user experience. What does it mean? You can imagine like-minded as a mental health platform through which you can get access to different support formats ranging from one-on-ones, group sessions, to digital exercises. But the huge difference to also most of our other, let's say, competitors in the market or other solutions out there is that we are guiding the users through their journey. So you don't just end up on a platform with lots of choices, but you actually go through assessments in the beginning and then we give you personalized recommendations. And that's also why we have decided to build our mental health solution on data and machine learning, because we are 100% convinced that this is super important to ensure a high effectiveness and also, of course, scalability of the solution. Two important things here that we're going to discuss in a couple, you know, in a couple of minutes is the the machine learning part. I mean, the data machine learning is not important. Uh, I mean, it's important, but not it's not <laughs> crucial. The most important thing is what you do with the data, yeah. and uh, and then the the pivot part. It's a solution that involves a very personalized support in group workshops. I read in your website, individ- individual sessions, webinar, mm-hmm. exchange groups, a media library. And what's good to see is, like I saw on your website, that you have like ninety percent of the, the your users are describing a, a positive effect on their mental yeah. well-being. Exactly, exactly, and and this is like one of the aspects around that, or one of the factors where we see this big impact is that we're personalizing the support formats for the people. What does it mean? We are not just giving them a one-on-one treatment and say, hey talk to the psychologist to solve all of your problems, but we're trying to understand what is the current individual situation of that person? What is the exact topic? What is maybe even the previous experience this person has? What are personality types of these people? And then we try to really personalize the recommendations and guide them through the different care formats. This could look like one person might be starting with two very intense one-on-one sessions with one of our psychologists, but then they would be guided into a group workshop where they can leverage different success factors that can't be leveraged in a one-on-one session. And then they end with digital exercises to actually bring what they've learned into their daily lives. Because only through combining different formats, you can leverage different success factors of these different treatments and then you can actually change behavior. Yeah, This is also something that has already been proven through psychological science. So it's it's nothing that we just came up with. And when you say you have 35% of average employee engagement, what does it mean? What, what, what does this number mean? Yeah, that means that 
from from all of the employees that have access to like-minded this percentage is actually using like-minded so they are registering on the platform and then they are making use of at least one of our formats in the platform for example they are using digital exercises in the media library they are using live formats like group workshops or one-on-ones That's great to see because I know that's that's one of the most difficult part, right? When you when you have to, when you start having this, there are so many companies who just say, "Hey, here is something we just sign up for 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 something just to say they're doing something for their employees," and then usually it stays at the you know at the at the corner and like nobody's using it. Yeah, and it it was definitely nothing that just came along. Um, I think there are two aspects that played into this high activation rate. First of all, definitely mental health is a topic. So yes, I think it's one of the most exciting benefits for employees because it's something new and it's something that's bothering all of us. But then second of, secondly, we have put a lot of effort in really activating the employees. So we're not we're not this silent external provider who sends out one email once a year and you never hear about them again. <laughs> we are actually quite present in our client companies. I'd be curious to talk about the different tests that you are using or the data you use, you're using actually to try to measure how you can optimize and activate these employees. But let's take a step and talk about this pivot. What made you decide to pivot after one year? So um, first of all, when we started with our solution in the B2C market, um, where we brought group sessions online, we knew that this would going to be probably a very tough adventure and a, a tough experiment to prove because mental health is a very new topic and especially in Europe a healthcare B2C business model hasn't really been successful in the past yeah so we knew it was a big challenge and we were quite let's say aware of everything that we would need to prove in order to have enough proof of concept to say this can work in the B2C market. So I think first of all we were already very aware of the challenge and that was important because then we already started in the beginning to set ourselves very clear goals that we wanted to reach in order to prove ourselves that this mo business model can work in B2C. Um, and then we had really like milestones and check-ins of course as a company we we also worked with OKRs from the very beginning and this helped us a lot in order to um, yeah ho hold ourselves account accountable whether we have reached these milestones or not and then after three months after six months there was the especially after six months was a time where I think we already saw that we were far away of reaching the goals that we have set out but there was still a time And that's, I think, also very interesting for maybe um, people who are listening and who are in a similar situation. We were too young to say, to stop it there. So we said, okay, it's only six months. We have we have quite far away of reaching our goals, but still we haven't tried enough, right? So we set ourselves another deadline and said, okay, we will use the next six months in order to do a lot of experiments And set ourselves another very, very strict goals. And if we don't reach these, we commit right now today <laughs> that we will pivot. Because what I also found or what, what my experience was that there were some different opinions in our founding team, right? That some of us were a bit more 
into the direction of you know clinging to this vision and this idea and not giving up and some of us were a bit more pragmatic and saying hey we also need to build a business that needs to be profitable at some point or at least work and give us some revenue um, and i think that was a quite interesting and also intense time because if this podcast helps you please do me a huge favor and click on the follow button on your podcast platform It helps to grow this podcast faster and to convince the most impactful entrepreneurs of the world to join me in these interviews so that you and other entrepreneurs can learn from them. We were debating a lot around pivoting or not. And I think what helped us to finally take a decision and move and really pivot was setting out these clear goals and committing up front, like really saying, okay, If we are not reaching these goals, all of us commit now that we will pivot to not have another discussion again. Because, of course, you're tied to your vision, right? You love your vision and you love your initial idea. But that's also why I said one of the, the don'ts when you're pivoting is don't fall too much in love with your initial idea. Stay flexible. I think that's very, very important and was a very important learning for all of us as well. So to questions that come to my mind directly right now when you say that is first one is so after six months you decide you had some goals and you realize you're not reaching them and then you decide to you all agree that you, you set a new set of goals and then in six months time if you don't reach them you're going to pivot what were these two goals what were the main kpi uh, the main goal you were uh, focusing on was it the revenue one was it the user one so there were Two, yeah. So I think there were two main KPIs we were looking at. So first of all, um, one of the biggest KPIs was, are we actually making revenue? Are people actually willing to pay something for our solution, to pay for the group sessions they are participating in? And in the very beginning, we basically gave out our first sessions for free in order to, you know, just get it going and see whether people participate in the group and so forth. And then at some point, we, of course, started to add price tags. And then we saw a huge drop in usage and a huge drop in user acquisition. And our CACs went super high. So <laughs> that was one of the KPIs that we looked at. And the second one was definitely retention. Because especially our product team rather followed the idea of making one rather making or rather focus on the 100 people that love your product instead of the xyz thousand people who don't like it yet and understand why they love it and make them stay so the second kpi was retention whether we could retain those users that actually loved us for longer than five weeks because of course we had um, um, a certain ratio that we needed to achieve in order to have a good um, payback on our customer acquisition costs and that was at least three months so we looked at the kpi whether we can retain users for three months That was the second one. And I think the main KPI or the main reason why we then pivoted was definitely the first one because we saw that there is no willingness to pay for such a solution and that lots of people, especially in Europe, are very used to um, having the their... Um, the insurers paying for the healthcare, right? And for anything related to healthcare. So people wouldn't pay for group sessions. And that was the main reason why we decided after all to pivot because actually after like 
I would say, 11 months, we found a hack that increased the retention of the users a lot. So the retention KPI was actually looking good, while the the payer problem or the payer KPI, the revenue, was not really increasing. Yeah, you want to have both, right? You want to have a lot of people who come in and pay and stay. May I ask you, what was your target audience at that time? And what was the, the model you had, the business model you had at, before the pivot? Yeah, so the business model was um, to really bring like-minded people together in a group and to work on their mental burden and their mental problems. And this could could be something like a separation because of a relationship. That was, for example, one of the most preferred group sessions and the most booked group sessions was actually separation after a relationship because of a lot of people have a very intense pain after such a period and they love to talk to people who are in a similar situation and the business model was really to make psychological support more scalable through these group sessions and this is not stupid and still one of our USPs. We are actually using groups a lot in our current solution and it's working very well And because even science has shown that group therapy can be just as effective as one-on-one -on -one therapy. But it's just very tough to make it a reality in the in the offline market, yeah, because logistically it's super complicated to bring together people in a group in the in the real life situation. And this was why we decided to do it online. And the business model was really to scale psychological support. So all these group sessions were guided by a psychologist. Um, and that was the idea behind it. And of course the cost costs are way lower for groups because, for example, one person would pay 10 euros for a group session while a one-on-one -on -one session costs you rather 80 to 100 euros. So it's actually a huge cost uh, saving when you're using groups and it is more scalable than the one-on-one -on -one sessions. And was it subscription-based or was it a pay-per-session? Yeah, so in the end, we ended up having a subscription for at least three months and then the option to move into a, let's say, lower budget subscription where you would have one group session per month instead of one group sessions per week and so forth. So, yes, we were targeting a sub sub subscription model. Yeah. And you so after a year, you don't reach the numbers you, you had set up for, for in terms of Uh, you decide to switch to B2B. So who, how, how does that happen? Who, how do you define your new target audience at that time? Yeah, I think what's also important to say here is that when you pivot, you should, in, in my opinion, you should have at least some proof points that the new way you are choosing is a better way. And what made us Uh, pivot to B2B was actually that we had inbound through comp through companies. So companies um, talking to us, reaching out to us and asking, hey, I, I heard about like-minded, you are helping people with mental burdens. Can you help our employees? So that was actually why we first of all understood, hey, there can be actually a market for our solution in the B2B market. And then uh, when the first companies reached out to us, we started to do a pilot. And that was already after the first six months. So we saw that the first six months were tough, but we didn't give up already on the B2C. But at the same time, since there was inbound through companies, we started piloting with two companies to see whether we would have an easier time to actually activate employees and get them into our solution. And that proved right. So what we saw that is that when people didn't have to pay out of pocket, 
they were more open to use a mental health solution. That was super interesting because, as I said, I think in the European mindset, it's so deeply anchored that we do not pay out of pocket for healthcare support that we are way more open to test these things out when we don't have to pay for ourselves. The US versus Europe, I have the feeling that from the influencers and following of the market and just seeing all the documentaries that the US is maybe it's probably the society is a bit more broken up there too than here for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but they are also way more open, I feel, more advanced in terms of psychological, you know, support and mental health and, and, and daring to say, I feel that, you know, you see a psychologist or you see a psychiatrist or something while I feel like it's way more, it's still a bit more taboo here in, in, in Europe. Or is it just a feeling? I think for some parts of the U.S., that's completely right, but definitely just for some parts. So when you take a look at the eastern and the and the in the east and the west part of the U.S., so let's talk about New York, California, and so forth, then you definitely see more openness towards mental health, and it seems like they are already a bit more educated when it comes to the topic, thus more advanced and more open, and they don't really see it as a um, illness or something like a weakness as a lot of people in Europe still still perceive it, right? So they rather see the strength in it. They rather see it as, as something that boosts your performance, that boosts your personal development. And here they are definitely a bit more advanced than than people in, in Europe and in Germany. But I would say that doesn't apply, apply for for whole America. So when you take a look at every other state or the other states in the US, definitely there's also a stigma around mental health still. Um, yeah, so I think it applies to some parts. And I think, I think in general, what you can say about the US is that the willingness to, to pay out of pocket for your lifestyle products and for your health care is definitely higher independently of the state. And this is definitely due to the healthcare system, which is not as valid or substantial as we find it in Europe. So people are used to paying out of pocket for their lifestyle and for their healthcare and for their wellness and for their, for their well-being way more than the Europeans are. And I think that is rather the deciding factor why such solutions have an easier time, especially in the B2C market in the U.S., and when it comes to the B2B market, what you said here, it's a fantastic example of having a great product, right? Because I think when you start B2C and when you say you have to look at the data of what's, you know, analyzed, get some insights from what's coming up. And this is a difficult part with all the data you might have. Having B2B potential customers asking for, you know, to try your product is a fantastic, usually, sign that... Uh, <laughs> that your product is working in the end we were super lucky in my opinion that we started b2c because since we started in the b2c market we understood the b2c user in the first place and i mean nowadays we are not only b2b right we are actually a b2b2c solution and i think what's tough for a lot of b2b companies is that they um, understand in the first place the company and the, the persona they are selling to. But in the second place, they usually have a harder time to understand the end customer, which is usually the employee, and they are super far away from these. So I think we had actually some luck to have gone through both markets. Um, but at the same time, 
a pivot is also quite a lot of work. So I think, I think looking back, we were lucky too that we didn't know what to expect from a pivot. I think we were a bit naive and we thought, yeah, yeah, we just pivot to B2B easy. And we had no idea how much work this would be. What was the hardest part? I think the hardest part was to learn that we... In the beginning, we thought we could just take our digital product, which we have developed, which we had developed already for 12 months and could just apply it in the B2B context. But we learned very early on that we had to completely shift the product. So what we've done, we uh, actually kind of deleted, eliminated everything we had and we started from scratch. So after 12 months into into the startup journey, we completely started a new product from the ground to build it for the B2B market and realize now we are not selling anymore anymore just to the users, but we are selling to a company. So we have to actually address two customers, two kind of customers. I think that was one of the hardest parts to restart again and also selling a product in the first months that actually didn't exist. Like really, we were selling a product that just existed on mock-ups <laughs> that felt for me as someone who loves to control everything in life <laughs> didn't feel so good in the beginning but it was a very good in, uh, learning for all of us and also for me personally um, and I think then the the second part was definitely the sales um, aspect so we had no clue that B2B sales is such a huge thing and um I think it was good that we were a bit naive because we just started selling, uh, me and my co-founder. In the first year, we relied completely on founder sales, which was also good learning for us because we were close to the clients. But then we also realized building up a sales machine that is really working well, building up a sales team is super, super complex. And I think that is also one of my biggest learnings. That's something I'm really happy to tackle a bit later, how you move from founder sales to, you know, general sales here yeah. when you said you, you had to sell a product that doesn't exist i found that also really fantastic to hear because we, with a lot of my clients this is what i struggled the most is to convince them you know they, they always want to wait more before you know testing something out and putting it in front of users or trying to sell something that is actually not existing yet what convinced you at the time or your team how did you get convinced to say, now we need to go out and we need to, to pitch this uh, the way it is. So it was the urgency that we already had in the team. I mean, pivoting your initial idea is, is definitely a huge, a huge step. And also our team has gone through a year of experiments, a year of not really having successes. So also in the team, there was this, you know, need for finally having some achievements, finally finding product market fit. And everyone was so hungry to find product market fit that I think that was already sufficient. We needed no one to tell us <laughs> to do that. We were really very keen on, on finally selling a product that people would buy and pay money for. So, um, yeah, it wasn't that, that tough. Uh, I, I mean, it did feel weird to, to sell something, um, and say, yeah, look at these, at this platform. This is what it looks like. And you knew, okay, I really hope that our engineering team will deliver very fast. <laughs> and so I think that was a good experience. But at the same time, I think what was also very clear to us is, you know, we have invested so much effort and also engineering time and capacity into the B2C solution where we've built a beautiful B2C product. 
while then, you know, realizing that no one pays for it. And that was also a very big pain. And we said to ourselves, we are not doing this again. We are selling before we build the product. <laughs> and I mean, every startup book tells you actually to do that. And still, I think a lot of us don't dare in the first place. Um, and that was a very helpful and painful experience um, that, that made us sell then before building the product. And we said, we only invest our engineering resources once we have the proof that someone wants this product and not just one person but better three companies than one company and better 10 companies <laughs> way to go and in that case usually we we say that when you find real product market fit it gets everything gets easy that easy or numbers that you were expecting to to go up are really like you you cannot miss them was it what you expected to was it what you saw too Yeah, definitely. So the first year was actually crazy. And I think probably probably we were also uh, lucky with the timing a bit. I think there are a lot of things always coming together when a startup has this spike of revenue. Um, so what we saw or what we achieved is that we built up 1 million of ARR within the first 12 months. And all of that with me and my co-founder doing sales plus one sales executive. So it was a super basic setup. And uh, that was for us enough proof that there is a market out there, that there is a need out there. Um, so, yeah, that was very incredible to see, especially coming from a B2C product and market that was not bringing any revenue. So you went from almost not not a lot of money to 1 million annual recurring revenue in 12 yeah. months. Yeah. Wow. Let's move to the second part of the do's and don'ts you sent me, which is one of the really, like, strength of your company and what you have accomplished so far is how to build a successful mental health company based on data and machine learning so what what can you tell us here what what would you advise entrepreneurs to do to to actually build a company mental health is probably a specific case here but in general a company based on data and, and machine learning so I think, first of all, to, to make clear how we are using data or what it means that we are, we are based on data, um, as I said in the very beginning, we are guiding our users through their mental health journey, so to say. We are making sure that everyone gets the support they, they actually need and not, and not just any support, but actually the right formats. Um, And we have decided to do so because we learned in the B2C market that most of the people out there do not know what they need and what they want. They just know they are not feeling good. And also because psychological science already shows that the one-on-one -on -one treatments, which are per default giving, given out to any, to everyone, are not the only format to treat and to heal mental illnesses or mental struggles. Yeah? So there are many reasons why we have decided to go for it. And I think one of the most important aspects in order to build a company based on data and deciding for, for example, using also machine learning is to ask yourself whether you really need that in your business model and whether it's really having an impact on your solution and whether it's really needed. Um, why am I saying this? Because when we started to collect data and we decided to go this way, we had lots of discussions internally in the team about will this really change the needle? Will this really bring us forward? Will this make a difference in the market? Because of course, you could also just say, 
hey, we have a digital platform and it's sufficient that this is digital <laughs> and everything takes place online and we're just selling this to companies because they don't know or they don't care so much about data and machine learning anyways. Yeah, They are buying a platform and an external provider. Um, and we know that some of our competitors are going for that, let's say, rather simple way. And this, of course, made us reflect on whether we should at all go for the more difficult way and collect data and build machine learning algorithms. But what we have seen and what we are seeing right now and what which made us decide to do that is that we could really increase the activation, the retention and the impact on the users. And in our opinion, a B2B solution can only survive when you really have a different um, impact on the end user, on the B2B2C customer. Because even though the HR persona or the C-level is in deciding in the end whether they buy the product or whether they keep it, they will look at, do my employees use it? Are my employees happy? Do we notice a difference in our company? Does it have any impact on our KPIs? And when you're not capable of showing that you have an impact on certain company KPIs and that your product is actually impactful, then you will be the the benefit or the the solution that's being kicked out after one or two years again. And that's why we decided that we see a huge value and also a huge USP that is more defensible in the long term um, to go for data. So one of my do's is when you wonder whether you should base your solution on data, whether you should make use of machine learning, really ask yourself, is this going to change the needle? Is this really having an impact? Is this helping to create a USP? Is this increasing your growth and your revenue over time? Is this increasing your retention? I saw on your website, on your brilliant marketing strategy, on the hero page, you start with a call to action, which is, uh, you know, calculate the ROI for your company. So target audience, I guess, you know, HR manager, people who are you know, C-level in a company. What is a typical ROI for business owners or C-level in a company? Because I think if there is one thing I, I remember and I, from all the all learnings I got from all the people I've interviewed in this podcast is most of the time, if you want to have an impact, you at scale on people or on the planet, you also need one of the, it's it's sad, but one of the rare, the, the only way to achieve that at the moment very often is to make sure you show profit, uh, that, that impact as a indirect or direct profit for the company afterwards. So what's the impact of the mental health uh, that you have, uh, improvement that you have? Hey, before you jump to the next part of this episode, one quick info. If you don't want to miss the best strategies for entrepreneurs like you, sign up for my newsletter with a link in the description. You will receive a summary of advice from each episode Get personal recommendations based on your startup stage and industry. And you will also receive my most useful growth and LinkedIn marketing strategies. Just follow the link in the description to sign up. Back to the next part of this interview. Yeah, and I, I understand that you say it's sad, it's sad in a way, but in my opinion, it's actually not sad at all because I do believe that... Um, proving what you're building and proving your impact by real numbers and data is really the only way to prove that what you're working on is actually functioning and i do know it does, it's not that romantic and i also know 
I mean, I'm a psychologist myself. Everything that's very human related and uh, related to our behavior and to our mental well-being is not that tangible, right? It's very, very hard to measure. But if you're not finding a way to measure that you're having an impact on these soft parts, you would you can never claim that what you're doing has an impact, right? So this is also why psychology needed to um, redefine the whole way of how they are doing science. Yeah, I don't know if you know that, but there was a huge change after after Sigmund Freud, <laughs> how to make it more measurable that psychological treatments actually have an impact. Because otherwise, everything you're doing can also just be anecdotal or nonsense, to, to, to be quite <laughs> clear, exactly. And... Um, I think what we, so the ROI that we are calculating is based on different factors because we have an impact on, first of all, the health of the people. So we are reducing sick leave. And that means, for example, that we are, first of all, preventing uh, mental illness. And secondly, we can even help people who already show mental illnesses or symptoms to recover faster. So this is one of the first aspects that reduces costs for the em employer. And the second one, and I would say that is even bigger, is um, that we are helping acquiring and especially retaining talent. Because one of the main reasons by now why, why employees are leaving companies is also because they do not feel good anymore, because they feel like they are too burdened. They feel like they can't be happy. They feel like they can't be productive. They are not motivated anymore. And a huge impacting factor to these things is their mental well-being. And we already have shown by now with data, with surveys and assessments that we've done, that we have a significant impact on the willingness to stay with the employer because we are like because the employer is taking care of the mental health of the employees. And that's I think even a bigger aspect. And then when it comes to acquiring talents, in a in a market where we have an ongoing war of uh, war for talent, um, it's also a deciding factor because especially the younger generations would not start in a company anymore where the employers are not taking care about mental well-being. So I think these factors are even more impactful and of course have a direct effect on the return on investment. I mean, sick leave it's. It's clear. It's measurable. It's uh, you can you can show that very directly. And acquiring talent, retaining talent is probably easier. But acquiring talent, do do you have data from from the companies? That, which data do you should do you use to show that? Mm. Yeah, here we are basing our hypotheses on existing data, uh, officially or publicly existing data. So there has been a lot of studies and statistics around the question. What is one of the reasons why you would start um, with a new company or why you would even leave your employer? And um, especially also LinkedIn has done a bigger survey around um, the main reasons or the main benefits employees are looking out for in their new employer. And well-being was, I think, on number one or number two. There has been a recent study. I, I talked to someone from LinkedIn about it. And I found this even myself super surprising. I mean, I knew it was in the top five, but I didn't know it was even on number two or number two, uh, number one for most employees. So it's one of the main reasons they look out for when they choose a new employer. And these are statistics. And of course, uh, we are starting to do these uh, surveys and assessments and studies ourselves, but it takes time and, and also data and quantity of data.
with everything you share right now, I, you're really convincing me. I mean, I've already convinced her how important mental health is, but how how useful your your platform is. Is there a specific size of your ideal clients, or not for you, but also for me? Is like Mandate a product that is interesting to use if you are a company of two, or even alone? I don't know for solopreneurs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in general, like our sweet spot of company size is right now between 200 and rather 10,000 FDEs. Um, but of course, everyone can use it, right? So uh, it can be even um, useful for, for you as a solo entrepreneur if you have access to the platform. But for us, from the business model perspective, it doesn't make so much sense to sell to very, very small companies. That doesn't mean that we do not uh, also make some exceptions. But um, right now, for us, from the business model perspective, it's easier for us to work with some bigger clients. But what I think is also very important to say, and that's also how we are building the product, as I mentioned, that we are still very, very B2C focused and, and user focused. We are planning to open up into the B2C market at some point again. So right now we have started the B2B2C journey and this is the way we are going for in the next three years probably. But at some point there will be a way to access our platform as a single user again. Um, and this is probably once we have started to work with insurers so that insurers can actually take over the costs for a B2C user, a B2C customer. In the do's and don'ts you sent me, you said don't just collect data with the aim to collect as many data as possible. Be as specific as you can, as you can be about the quality and kind of data. Otherwise, it will be useless. Can you iterate a bit more about this and how you actually decide which data you collect and uh, and how you, you do that? Yeah. So um, the reason why I'm I said this um, is also because also us, yeah, also we collected some data that we're not using <laughs> anymore that were kind of useless. And I think maybe you even have to fall into that trap or you have to make this mistake once so that you understand what actually are the data that I need. Um, so what I'm meaning here is that you, you can collect lots of random data with lots of different questionnaires, but if you're not making sure that the quality of these data is good, for example, scientifically valid, because you are using self-made questionnaires instead of scientifically valid and proven questionnaires, you will probably not be able to really make use of these data. And if all of your uh, data is completely all over the place and not coherent over time, it's also super, super tough to draw conclusions from these data. So you need to make sure that your data are somehow comparable. So what I would suggest is to make sure that from the beginning, you have at least uh, three or four, let's say, um, columns of data that you're focusing on and where you're making sure these are like, this is like the baseline set of data that I will be collecting for all of the time, no matter what. You can add data here and there. You can test around with different questionnaires, but make sure that you have a certain baseline or base of a data set that is somehow coherent and that you are collecting over a period of time. That's at least what helped us in order to draw conclusions and then use data that we have been collecting let's say even by coincidence two years ago because two years ago we didn't plan to use machine learning and that was a decision around one and a half years ago 
But we were lucky that we were so strict with ourselves to use, for example, psychological diagnostic and scientific valid questionnaires from the very beginning that we never changed, that we could actually use these data, um, even though they were before we actually decided to go for this data approach in this machine learning way. So I think that's that's a good learning. How did you choose these like baseline data? You know, somebody starting tomorrow a company, how, how do you choose your set of data? What's the framework you used to, to just yeah. decide we're going to collect these data for sure? Research, I would say that's probably, that was maybe my, my impact and my academic background. <laughs> so psychology is a very theoretical academic uh, subject where we learn to be super, super strict with all the data we are collecting and with the studies we are executing. And um, with that mindset, I this is the mindset I think I brought also into the company. So from the very beginning, I made sure that even if that led to lots of discussions with our product team because they don't like to have long and lengthy questionnaires. <laughs> I still made sure that we find valid questionnaires of short versions and so forth to make sure that we somehow um, apply, apply to the gold standard that is being used in research. And then also when we decided what other data we are looking at in order to collect around our users, we always took a look at the current research and as uh, took a look at what are the most important, for example, demographic data you need to collect, what are the most important personality data you need to collect in order to draw conclusions from a psychological perspective about the mental health status and the improvement of the mental health status of the individual person. Are you using Fonts? Recently, we started to use with some of my clients, like the DIP model from Spotify, where, you know, it's dip for DIBBs or data, you take a certain amount of data from these data, you make some insights of it. And then from these insights, you can start to get some belief or we believe that our users believe, like behave into that way. And so draw some conclusions and make some bets in that case and say, we're going to start to do something to it. Are you using some kind of frameworks like that on, and as well for, for to improve your products? Definitely. So I didn't know the name for the fr framework, but I, um, in my opinion, the way our product team and data team is working, they are definitely making use of such concepts in order to improve the data quality and also decide about what are more data or um, data sources that we need to activate in order to have more and better learnings. So since more than a year now, we are um, also, we hired data scientists who have definitely even more clue than I definitely <laughs> to collect the right data and make sure that our quality of data is going into the right direction. Yeah. What was the hardest part about this whole data And, and machine learning setup or building or culture in your company? Definitely to keep focus and to also not to make sure that even though you decide to focus on data and a machine learning approach in a product where it is not immediately impacting your revenue, that you somehow make room and resources free for that, but still don't lose your focus, of course, on what's actually building up your revenue right now. And I think that was the hardest part of all of it because we had a lot of discussions also in the founder team. Hey, but what if 
we are losing focus now that we are starting to collect data, now that we are starting to focus on machine learning, because this is not immediately impacting our revenue. It's not increasing our revenue tomorrow. It's a long-term investment for sure, because you're investing into building a better product than the competition, which will probably pay off in one to two years and is not impacting your revenue right now. So I think this was the hardest part for us to um, to really manage our resources and our focus in a way that we focus still on building a revenue on, you know, optimizing our sales and so forth, but at the same time building something that's meaningful. I think that is definitely the hardest part. And this is probably also why lots of companies would not choose to go for data and machine learning at all. These big bets, basically these big cores, yeah. like building a big product that you know will be useful in a year time. And yeah. it will take a long time to build. And, and, and I think as, a, as founders uh, or as a startups growing up, it's important to be able to manage these resources. And I don't know, applying some kind of 80-20 rules when you say 80% of the resources that are impacting, we'll use them for something that impacts the revenue directly now. And then we'll, we'll exactly. keep 20% for, for the long term. Is that is that how you were, you, you're doing it? Yeah, that's, that's going into the direction. And I was just about to add that what is helping us a lot in order to keep the focus on the right things is that we are really using OKRs. And I think by now I can say we have like after three years, we're at a point where it's really, really working well for us. So it also took us a while away in a time to really implement it into the team and make everyone understand how OKRs work. But now uh, OKRs function pretty well for us and they help us to keep the focus. For example, it's going into the direction you just mentioned. We have a bit more of objectives that are focusing on the direct revenue increase than an object than the amount of objectives that are focusing on the product development in order to you know make sure that everyone in the team understands a bit the balance that of the focus yeah very smart so you take some of the objectives are linked to the short term and some of the objectives are linked exactly. to the long term on a, a specific uh, like marketing and growth uh, question because you know that's what i love <laughs> That's what I do as well as a living store. Uh, you said it was very hard to move from founder sales when you start to move to B2B. And I know that's something that's very hard that, uh, in, in, in B2B when you scale up. At the beginning, lots of founders, it's usually the founders who do all the sales. And it's also, uh, and, and then when you scale up you, as a founder, you need to be able to get off of that so that the team can actually you know start selling instead of you but it's always difficult because as a founder usually you know i see you as well on linkedin you lots of founders are have skin in the games are you know understand the product very well have speeched so much that they they have an enthusiasm that that is like sometimes not always there or not in the same way for people that you hire just right now to start selling your product so what would be the advice you have to to move from this founder sales to to a more like global sales team I would say one of the most important learnings and one of the aspects, and in my opinion, that is needed as an absolute base in order to move from founder sales to, to team sales is to make sure that you have understood the the basic technical aspects around your sales. That means you have to make sure that you understood your ICP. You have to make sure that you understood the jobs to be done of your personas. You have to <laughs> make sure that you understand the different personas you're selling to. And you really have to make sure that you have a good, you know, technical system in place 
CRM, but also plus like a sales playbook and everything that empowers and enables your sales team to do a great sell. Yeah, I think this is really the absolute most important learning for me to have all of these things in place because what happens with founders who sell is that we have we forget we forget how many information we have in our mind because we know everything about the company we know we understand so much more not because we are smarter but because we have access to all information in the company and that is why i think founders tend to underestimate how much how important it is to to document all this information and to really write down a good and functioning sales playbook and, and you know an approach to the sales in a very technical manner <laughs> to enable everyone else to do the same job. And I think that's really the first important step. And then the second is... Hey, just a 10-second break to tell you. I just released a free video presentation to explain the three key strategies I use to get 7,500 change makers to follow me on LinkedIn and to reach more than 1 million people this year with my posts. It's free. Just follow the link in the description to download it. Also, don't underestimate how much, especially in the first years of of, uh, of a startup and in, in the selling in the B2B market, how much of these sales are also dependent on, on building relationships and showing enthusiasm and passion. And that's, of course, something that is not as easily replicable because I'm, I cannot expect that everyone who joins like-minded um, talks about like-minded with the exact same enthusiasm and passion as I do. But I think what you can do as a founder is, is to, to live by example, to show your passion, to when you talk about your company, to just make them feel how you feel when you talk about it. And I think don't underestimate it and don't expect from the very first moment from, from your sales team that they perform in the exact same way and with the exact same enthusiasm. Yeah, Sometimes it's like this because some people are super passionate about the product and the topic. But I think this is even why it's even more important to make sure that you have the technical aspects really, really well in place. Because I'm also... I, I had no idea about B2C, B2B sales before I started this. <laughs> so I have a lot of learnings. Um, and I, what I really realized is that the technical aspects, having these in place, having everything well doc documented is, is key to selling. And I think every can, everyone can be a good seller when they have a good sales playbook. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm not surprised you are growing so fast with your company because you are applying so much of the what I think is core, the core, like the key elements to, to make a company successful, which is in that case, you know, like I heard jobs to be done. This is something that I, for, for those who don't know, you know, it's a framework of it's using marketing and it's using sales. It's about interviewing your users, which is lots of companies are very reluctant to do whatever it's in B2C or in B2B. It's about interviewing your, your you know, your paid customers and by interviewing them, what are their pain points? Why did they choose you? Why did they buy like your 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 company in the first you know your product in the first place? And and if you do that using these frameworks, you can see the numbers like the conversion numbers increasing so much. I used to work at ResearchGate uh, for for a year and a half. That was my, my my only actually experience in sales. We grew from you know maybe I was the first ten employees in the sales team, and then we grew to, to up to hundred people in a year and a half. And the great thing is, was lot, we were always sharing what was working, what was not working. 
And so in an indirect way, we, we would always have these like weekly sessions there where we would or would have like emails and people would write down, oh, these emails are working because of this and this. And we, this, with these conversations, we learned that this and that. And when you start doing that, very quickly, you start to have a playbook that you can use, that everybody can use. Yeah, we actually are using a so-called iteration system um, of iteration credits for that, what you've just explained. We have, we have like an, a huge Excel where everyone is, can collect iteration credits with every learning they document in order to become better to understand the jobs to be done and also the, the ICP or the personas behind it. And I think when you were talking, I just thought um, it's actually the the way I think, in my opinion, how sales can become really a win-win or really a game changer and a success is a bit comparable to why I think it does make sense to invest into long-term product development, into long-term product USPs, even though short-term it might appear harder and the pain is bigger, but long-term the achievement and what you can out take out of it and the benefit from it will be x times higher 10 times higher than when you only always focus on the short-term achievements and i think one of the reasons why a lot of startups um, are reluctant to to do this effort and this investment in the first in the first years and really talk to their customers to the users really understand the icps the job to be done and so forth is because It's very, very hard and it's very, very time consuming. And startups are by nature focused on short-term revenue increase, right? So they are so pressured. And I mean, I, I feel that. I, I, I've been through that myself. We are going through that all the time. And, and then being hard enough, tough enough to say, yes, we have to focus on short-term revenue, but we also need to do this now and invest our time and resources into this now because we do believe we have a long-term effect and a long-term benefit, which is 10x uh, higher than just going all the time for the short-term benefit. I think this is this is a huge step for lots, lots of startups to take, um, probably in the first two to four years. Yeah, speed and I mean short-term revenue impact is definitely important, and it is one of the reasons why, like, yeah, you you have to you know, hit the ground running and 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 build the plane, like flying. So that's a good excuse. But what I also see a lot with clients I work with, it's also because it's painful. It's 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 and it's I mean it's scary to put your product itself of 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 uh, you know like one of the. With one of my clients, we increased by, we went from 9% to 18%, now to 27% conversion rate. When you are with the UX designers, with the designers uh, and, and the product manager, you just get some people who don't know our, our brand to just uh, uh, come and tell us what they think about the website. You know, one of the things from from the Jobs to Be Done framework is you just show them the framework for five seconds and you say, just show them your website for five seconds. What did you understand? And it's it's painful to see that after five seconds they don't understand what your 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 very marketing slogan that you decide to put on your hero on your hero header or hero banner they, people don't get it. And sometimes you, we I've done it where sometimes after thirty seconds, after two minutes on the page, people still don't get what's in it for them, which is at the end the only thing that matters. Kimberly, thank you very much for all these uh, insights. For me, this is a, a gold mine. Um, One last question I have before the usual one I ask is, how do you keep a mental health yourself as an entrepreneur of a hyper-growing startup? 
That is a very valid question to ask. <laughs> And I would say, so first of all, I think to be very honest and also authentic about this topic, there were times, especially in the first half of the year, where I didn't manage to maintain my mental health very, very well, where I also realized myself that I'm close to some some limits um, that I haven't been close to before, I think. Um, but then at the same time, what I do to maintain it and to not, you know, cross these limits, because then you might end up in a burnout or something else, is that I try to educate myself a lot here as well. So I am working with a coach myself and I am, I think I'm a very aware by now about my own limits, about what I need to compensate. Also, I'm getting more and more aware about my boundaries that I need to set. And I think this is one of my biggest learnings. And this is something that I'm getting better in um, right now to also set boundaries within my own team, within my own company, and sometimes say no and not always yes. I think that's a very important learning. And then I can really say, start to understand yourself and start to find your own compensation mechanisms that really work for yourself. And for me, this is meditation. So I need to have some time for myself. It is also sleep, something I really underestimated for a long, long time because I was this person who said, yeah, six hours are enough. I just want to do my sports in the morning. And this is something I've really changed. So I'm looking, um, I'm really looking out to get at least my seven hours of sleep. And that is helping me a lot. But then at the same time, it's also some kind of fitness. So staying moving like not taking stair uh, taking stairs instead of elevator using my bike going to my fitness class and whatever so i think it's really about finding your own compensation mechanisms that really work for yourself and be clear with them and make everyone understand that you need them i think that's that's important <laughs> thank you you summarized it very well and i don't know if we all have been there but it's very important too be aware of your limits and uh, be self-aware of what, what, what needs to be done and what you can do and when, you, when it's time to say stop. Um, the three last questions. What's the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? I would like to say, to share two, if I may. <laughs> that's, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one is, um, and that's rather a life advice that I read in a really, really great book that I really honor and that I really appreciate, which is, When you have to ha have to take a hard decision, decide for for the way that is painful in the short term, because this will bring you the biggest profit and benefit in the long term, instead of foregoing the easier short term way. I think that is something that is really helping me um, with decisions, and I think the second one is something. I don't know if every anyone ever said that to me or whether that is my own advice and learning is um, trust your uh, intuition and gut feeling more. So there were a lot of moments in the past where I thought, I think it's not the right way. I think it's not, we shouldn't do that. And then I didn't have enough data to back this. So I didn't say it and I didn't, didn't follow my own <laughs> feeling here. And so many times it turned out that this first initial thought was the right right, right way uh, to have to that we should have gone for maybe and i think that is an important learning for me and maybe also an advice for uh, for other founders 
uh, I think our gut feeling or intuition knows a lot and we should not ignore it. That's so true. And it, it really impacts me right now, what you're saying, because the past days I've also been in discussion to become a co-founder of a company. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, and somehow oh. I felt that family-wise, I'd, I'd like, I just had a second boy. So uh, that that's, it's, mm. and, and my girlfriend is also working full-time. She's in parents to leave in Germany, but we go back to work full-time. And so we, you know, we share responsibilities. And at the beginning, I wanted to say yes. And then my gut feeling told me, To, to actually not say it. And it's uh, it was a hard decision. It combines everything you said. You know, short term, that would have felt good. and uh, But long term, I mean, long term, two, two, in, in one and a half, two years, this six months would have been fine, but then no next year would have been very, very difficult. Yeah. And this is where I felt better after saying no, because I, I felt like taking care of my family next year is more important. Yeah, yeah and I think intuition knows more than our logical mind because it does it make it makes so much sense we cannot um we cannot always we don't have access to all the hundred percent information that we have stored in our brain but our intuition is bringing together information that might be unconscious and also the feelings that we have with a decision they are also telling us something and i think yeah intuition is way more smarter than our neocortex <laughs> Yes, agreed. The last question. Can you tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find online? I love that. I love that question. <laughs> I tend to ask that sometimes in my interviews. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, one, one part about me that you wouldn't find maybe online and, and where I would say that makes me unique is that I'm really very judgmental free. So no matter where I go or no matter who I meet, um, I'm trying to be completely free of judgment and put my subjective inner self-talk mind person commentator aside to really look at everything that I meet and see from a very objective level. And I think that has brought me also to where I am today. So, Kimberly, thank you again so much for your time today. This was very super, super insightful. Uh, we wish you all the best with Like Minded. And uh, thank you for you know taking care of the people's mental health and uh, wishing you a very nice week. Yeah, and thanks, Drew, for inviting me here. It was, uh, it was very fun to talk to you and share some insights. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, if today's episode was useful, share it with your entrepreneur's friends so that we can all have a bigger impact on this planet and give it a five star on Apple Podcasts. That will make my day. Thanks so much in advance. Have a nice day.